there's no safe place in Russia these days for critics of President Vladimir Putin. The Kremlin has been timing its grip on social media platforms. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at the Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and examine how the news is reported. Here are some of the media stories we're looking at this week. Election season is approaching in Russia. How can you tell? Journalists are being branded foreign agents. An opposition figure is now an extremist. Facebook took down Donald Trump's account months ago. And after the platform reviewed that decision, Trump's not coming back anytime soon. The Turks turning to YouTube in search of the kind of reporting they can no longer find in the mainstream. And hashtag fail. I am a cisgender millennial. Who's a CIA recruitment video aimed at millennials. Russia under Vladimir Putin is a place where opposition parties exist, elections are held, a critical media are even tolerated, all up to a point. But with parliamentary elections coming and the political stakes rising, that veneer is starting to slip. Case in point, Alexei Navalny, the opposition figure who was first poisoned and then jailed. His organization, the FBK, which exposes political corruption, is about to be placed on Russia's list of extremist groups, along with names like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Navalny and his movement are barred from running in these elections, but their messaging could still affect the outcome. President Putin and his government are also going after Medusa, Russia's best-known privately funded news organization. They've classified it as a foreign agent. Medusa's journalists insist they get no government funding from any country. When the Kremlin works the Russian media, making its case against these organizations, it's not above reaching back in time and using some Soviet-style language and messaging. Our starting point this week is Moscow. When Putin came to power, it was obvious that you couldn't expect anything else from a former KGB agent. To be in the KGB isn't a profession, it's a state of mind. It's how he sees the world around him. And so, his only methods have been repression, censorship, and propaganda. It is evident that President Vladimir Putin sees in Russia's social media space a clear and present danger. It is why opposition figure come journalist Alexei Navalny is behind bars. Why Medusa, an online news operation that gets too many clicks for the Kremlin's liking, has been branded a foreign agent. On Navalny, there was the poisoning, traced to Russian spies, then the jail term, two and a half years. Prosecutors are now trying to classify Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, the FBK, an extremist organization, as they have designated Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. When it comes to Alexei Navalny, the Kremlin has dispensed with subtlety. First of all, Navalny um, has survived his poisoning attack, and shortly after that, uh, along with the joint investigation with Bellingcat and CNN, uh, the identities of Navalny's alleged poisoners were revealed. Now an exclusive investigation can reveal a top-secret mission tracking Navalny. 
And shortly after that, the State Duma has launched a new law that allowed the Russian state to block YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, which is a reaction to uh, Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption investigation. His recent investigation, the Putin's palace, has gathered over 100 million views, which is way more than anything a state TV channel can dream of having. For many years, like the state propaganda remained silent about Navalny and his supporters. But now something changed. Like someone said in the beginning of this year that they can actually cover Navalny and Russian propaganda is dedicated to Navalny right now. Сосед Навального покойки осужденный Александр Шуравлев рассказывает, что новичок в отряде оказался капризным. So in the last few months, the message sent across these media platforms was to create the negative image of Navalny. Basically, it's a character assassination campaign. Russian journalism hit its high watermark in the early post-Soviet days of the mid-1990s, an era that proved fleeting. It's been sliding ever since Vladimir Putin took power in 1999 taking a more repressive turn after 2014, when Russia annexed Western Ukraine. That same year, Medusa, an online investigative news outlet, moved its offices to neighboring Latvia, beyond the reach of the Kremlin. The authorities have now lumped Medusa in with US-funded news organizations like Voice of America and Radio Liberty, labeling it a foreign agent. This is a major event in, in, in the history of Russian journalism when, when the company that was funded by Russian journalists and actually earns money on Russian advertising market, that this company was marked as a foreign agent. On every page and literally on every post we publish on social networks, we have to write that we are the foreign agents. Marking us as a foreign agent immediately killed our business model. There are two reasons why advertisers have pulled back from Medusa. Firstly, Medusa's audience is going to diminish significantly. The second reason, the main reason, is fear. A company that buys ad space with a foreign agent can expect the security services, the FSB, or some other authorities to come knocking on the door. The advertisers are mainly afraid that they will become targets. The labeling of, you know, the Anti-Corruption Foundation and Medusa could potentially punish consumers for uh, reposting certain content that could apply to bloggers or, you know, just um, average social media users. We don't know to what extent those laws will apply. That sort of switches on uh, the function of self-censorship in our brain. We now can see, I mean, empirically, that people started posting less on Facebook. People started commenting less. So the law has a, an incredible impact. 
on uh, the Russian media landscape. The Russian government's defense of its foreign agents law usually includes the point that the U.S. has a similar law. But the American law is applied to news outlets owned by other governments, like Russia's Sputnik and RT, Qatar's AJ+, China's CGTN, not to outlets like Medusa, which says its funding is private. Russian state media is where the Kremlin delivers those messages, a blend of whataboutism and false equivalencing, peppered with Soviet-era terminology that still sells. You cannot compare the situation in Russia and the situation in the U.S. at all. Because in the U.S., you have independent branches of government and business. And in Russia, it's all under one person's rule, Putin's. The Russian government knows fully well that they're talking nonsense, but they're not even trying to hide it. So, in Russia, they took it from the United States. They said, look, they have this law. Why not adopt this? You create a, a, a stigma of a foreign agent. You promote that stigma in the media, very similar to the rhetoric of the Soviet Union of the 1930s. Foreign entities becomes the foreign agent. Foreign agent is intelligence service. Intelligence service meaning working for the enemy. The Cold War spirit embodies. The current offensive against critical voices comes four months before Russia's parliamentary elections. A stagnating economy stung by the pandemic and the nationwide Navalny-led demonstrations earlier this year have clearly unsettled Vladimir Putin's power zone. Since his arrest, Navalny's approval ratings have gone down, suggesting Putin doesn't have much to worry about. But it's Russia. Those polls are to be taken with a dose of salt. You need to understand that this is a country where people are scared of speaking out. If researchers ask someone for their opinion on Navalny or Putin, very few Russians would risk saying what they really think. But I don't think that the public's trust in Navalny is as low as the Russian government would like it to be. The pro-Navalny protests that I covered, a lot of those young people who came out didn't necessarily identify themselves as Navalny supporters as much as uh, to protest against the system that has jailed him. So Navalny's political significance, I think, stems from his ability to channel the frustrations that a lot of Russians have. But a lot of people still believe that he is a foreign agent who is sponsored by the CIA. And I think that is in part to the Kremlin's propaganda. Russian journalists are losing that battle because this battle is uh, being waged against the much more powerful enemy that does not play according to the rules. But a very important component here is civil society that will also join that battle. I truly believe that it's just a matter of time when the regime is going to experience problems. First and foremost, economic problems and the problems of loyalty of many communities within Russia.
three months after indefinitely suspending Donald Trump's account, Facebook has reviewed that decision through its oversight board and it's upheld it. Meenakshi Ravi has been tracking this story. Meena, this oversight board, it's been in place for a year now. This has to be the biggest case that it's had to weigh in on. No question, Richard. The oversight board was created to help Facebook, quote, answer some of the most difficult questions with regards to freedom of expression online. Members include a former head of state, journalists, activists, human rights lawyers, around 20 voices in total. They've dealt with a handful of considerably smaller cases up until now. With regards to the Trump decision, the suspension came in January after the storming of the U.S. Capitol building by his supporters. Trump's social media posts at the time were deemed to have significant security implications. The posts were taken down and his account was suspended. This ruling was then passed on to the Oversight Board, which has deemed the suspension both valid and necessary. But that's not all the board said, is it? I mean, there's a lot of detail in there. The ruling is 38 pages long. Here are some of the key takeaways. Firstly, there's no such thing as an indefinite suspension. It's not even there in Facebook's own rules. So the Oversight Board has now passed the decision back onto the company. They've said that they have to make a clear call. Either there's a permanent ban or there's a suspension with fixed timelines and a clear system of reviews. So in effect, this goes back to CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his team. They need to make the call. Next, the board says that Facebook can't simply make up rules on the fly, especially not when it comes to world leaders. There can be some exceptions with regards to newsworthiness, and ultimately political leaders need to follow the same rules as everyone else. There's plenty more in there, and it's clear that the oversight board is asserting its independence, something that critics have taken issue with, given that all of the board members have been picked by Facebook itself. And how is Mr. Trump taking the news? Well, just the Tuesday before the Oversight Board made its announcement, there was an announcement from Trump's office saying that he's going to create a communication platform. He's calling it From the Desk of Donald J. Trump, and it will allow him to post on whatever he pleases, with no provision, as of now at least, for anyone to comment back. In other words, a glorified blog? Yes, in effect. Okay, thanks, Mina. There are plenty of negative headlines coming out of Turkey these days. Rising interest rates, record COVID numbers, an economy in decline. Luckily for the Erdogan government, it's got most of the news media there under control. More than 85% of Turkey's mainstream media is in the hands of conglomerates that are aligned with the government. The president is a fixture on television, and hundreds of journalists have either been attacked, jailed, or have fled the country. Independent voices have taken refuge online, like Junaid Uzdemir. His daily YouTube program has become a news staple for Turks, younger viewers looking for journalism of a different kind. Uzdemir does have his critics, however. They say his decision to remain editorially neutral makes him complicit with the government. But his middle-of-the-road approach could be a survival strategy. In a country that has just introduced yet more legislation, curbing freedom of information online. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on the Turkish journalists who have swapped the broadcast airwaves for life on YouTube. Suleyman Soylu, Turkey's interior minister, a President Erdogan loyalist. Ekrem Emamolu, mayor of Istanbul, a central figure in the main opposition party. Şeyma Subaşı, actress and fashion designer, a Turkish celebrity. What do they all have in common? They've all been guests on Junaid Uzdemir's YouTube channel. 
We started filling a vacuum. Journalists have not been able to conduct independent and free journalism on Turkey's mainstream channels. So there's been a shift towards social media. Like when the Minister of Finance posted his resignation on Instagram. Everyone kept quiet, all mainstream media. At midnight, I launched a live broadcast, breaking news style. At 3 a.m., 150,000 people were still watching us. These are surreal numbers. The resignation of the finance minister was big news, just not on TV. The mainstream didn't touch it, perhaps because the Minister of Finance just happens to be President Erdogan's son-in-law. And getting on the wrong side of the president is ill-advised in Turkey. So YouTube has become a go-to, not just for mainstream journalists looking for a digital refuge, but for viewers looking for independent information delivered in an appealing way. Cüneyt Özdemir's style suits YouTube. It's an entertainment platform more than it is an information site. So your success depends on how much you can engage with people, entice them. Junaid has been inspired by American late-night talk shows, and he's mixed in his own humor. It's a style that really works for Generation Z. Hundreds and thousands of young people who don't normally follow news or politics follow Junaid's program. Özdemir's more than one million subscribers flock to his daily show, in part because he's no amateur, rather a veteran of the Turkish airwaves. He spent the majority of his career in television and still freelances for CNN Turk. But in 2017, he swapped the mainstream for the live stream. I was CNN Turk's New York correspondent at the time, and there was an important hearing, a case that heavily involved Turkey. The editorial management said they didn't want a daily report from outside the court, so I decided to follow the case myself. I began broadcasting on YouTube as a matter of necessity. What did I have to lose? Özdemir isn't the only mainstreamer who's migrated. The man credited as Turkey's digital pioneer is Ruşen Çakır. Back in 2015, after repeatedly being censored, Çakır created a platform called Medioscope. It instantly attracted like-minded journalists and remains a top Turkish YouTube channel for independent news and analysis. Then there's Fatih Portakal. Until last year, he was a celebrated anchor on Fox TV, one of the few non-government-aligned outlets left. But after several fines charged to the channel, Portakal resigned and turned to the tube, taking his followers with him. But perhaps the most famous Turkish YouTuber of late isn't actually a journalist at all. He's the president. In June, Erdogan hosted a live stream on YouTube in an attempt to attract support from Generation Z. 
it backfired badly. Thousands of criticisms poured in and the hashtag you won't receive our votes started trending. Erdogan ordered the comment section to be disabled. Just five days later, he delivered this speech to members of his ruling party. Fast forward three months and the introduction of a new bill stipulating that all social media companies with more than one million daily users must open offices in Turkey. Offices that will soon have just 24 hours to delete content that causes offence to the government. After the social media law took effect in October, most international digital media corporations, including YouTube and Google, fulfilled their requirements, appointing a Turkish representative. So thus far, the government effort to increase control over the social media sphere has succeeded. We haven't yet seen the full effects of this law. The real test will be when these social media giants receive demands from the government like delete this account or block this message. If they fully abide by the letter of the law, then the digital spaces that have allowed for our voices to be heard will be limited and will be eclipsed as a result. Anyone trying to practice critical journalism will become a target. Being a target of the government is something Turkish journalists know all too well. They even have a joke for it, Slivri Sogotur, which directly translates as Slivri must be cold. It refers to one of Turkey's largest prisons, the place where they could end up if they don't tow the government line. And many have. Dozens of journalists remain in Turkish jails. Hundreds are on trial on baseless charges. Thousands are unemployed or they self-censor. So it's easy enough to see why someone might be wary of pushing back against the Erdogan administration. Playing it safe is something Uzdemir's critics have accused him of. But when I put this to him, he told me he doesn't see it that way. Turkey is so polarized that everyone wants to hear their own version of the truth. The 50% who support the government only want to hear their version. The 50% who oppose the government only want to hear theirs. We have opened a space between these two communities. That's why what we do annoys both sides. There are moments when I think that his broadcasting is lacking and marred with shortcomings, and that I would do it differently. But however annoyed we might be with Junaid's journalism, we have to accept that he is able to do something we had lost. He can have everyone on his program. I think he's making a choice, a choice not to attract criticism. With the social media law looming over him, Uzdemir may be onto something. There's an election on the horizon in 2023, if not sooner, and there's a battle for the hearts and minds, or rather for the clicks and votes, of Generation Z, many of whom will be casting their ballots for the first time. Currently, one side in this social media battle is a lot more popular than the other, and the president knows it. Of course, the government wants to keep social media under control, but I don't see it happening in such a diversified social media environment. If you shut down YouTube, there's Twitter. If you shut down Twitter, there's WhatsApp. If you shut down WhatsApp, there's Signal. If you shut down Signal, there's Telegram. 
there will always be another medium. And finally, it's been a decade now since the first Humans of images started surfacing online. We've since seen pictures and read the stories of humans of New York, humans of Bombay, humans of all kinds of places. And it only took the CIA that long to figure out that they could tap into that format to recruit young Americans into intelligence gathering. Hence, humans of the CIA videos are now online. The most recent features a Latina American walking us through the agency's headquarters at Langley, speaking to us in a language best described as millennial. Given the CIA's ugly history of messing with Latin American democracies, this video was never going to go down well with the online commentariat. Their basic blowback message to the CIA? Stick to the clandestine stuff. Public spaces just aren't your thing. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. I did not sneak into CIA. My employment was not and is not the result of a fluke or slip through the cracks. I earned my way in and I earned my way up the ranks of this organization. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refused to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA.